With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science to the stuff that we're putting on our feet. We are back. It is 2022. It's our first episode of the year. This is episode number 71. We're recording on January 16th. There's a lot of football happening, but we can't talk about it because our guest has not watched him yet. He hasn't recorded, so we're going to be quiet about it. Um, But a couple housekeeping things. Uh, We are really excited about this direction that we're going in 2022. Um, We're trialing a lot of new things today. So you guys are all listening to a little bit of a guinea pig episode. We have been doing the best we can to improve our sound quality. So we have a producer that we can't even like see or hear, but he can hear us and it's kind of creepy. But he's taking care of trying to get this sound quality up. We have new mics um, and we're just working on this whole process. So we're excited to see how it turns out. And I could have egg on my face if it all turns out terrible. Sorry, everybody. I know it wouldn't be BJ's. Uh, BJ's the guy who's helping us. It wouldn't be his fault. It would be. I, I was going to give him a code name, Casper, but. Oh, that's better. No, I ruined it. We got Casper taking care of the audio. The other thing I just wanted to draw attention to at our last uh, podcast, it was the final one of 2021, and we introduced our DOR giving initiative Um, And so go on our website at docsfrunning.com, check out our December roundup. In that, you'll find more information about Megan's Wings, that's where we made our first donation to. Um, So please go learn more about them and see if that's an area you'd like to get involved in. It's something that's a little bit running adjacent, but it's about helping families of children who have cancer. And so go check that out um, and see what they're about. But it was fun to partner with them in December, and we've got a new organization coming in a couple weeks that we will highlight. So we have our typical people here at the round table. We got uh, David Salas, we have Matt Klein, uh, and then we have a very, very special guest that we're very excited about welcoming, Stuart Jenkins. He's been in the running industry for 43 years, uh, kind of a leader in innovation and doing work with a lot of different companies. And it's an honor to have him on. He has his own success in the his own running, uh, and then has worked with a lot of really great companies. And we'll let him kind of talk about some of those things, but. One of my favorite things about him is that he sounds a lot like Matt LePay, and most people probably don't know who Matt LePay is, but he's the uh, play-by-play announcer for Badger football and basketball, and so it's really fun to have him on because it makes me feel excited about sports. So, Stuart, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. I I now know that I'm being compared to a guinea pig, which might be (laughs) one of the nicer things people have compared me to in my life, and a and a Badger announcer. Uh, I certainly have a face for radio, so I'm glad we're doing it that way. But uh, it's great to be on with you. Uh, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. For the record, the guinea pig was more about the, the audio than having you on. So, <laughs> <laughs> But let's, let's start with a little bit of your history, just helping people get to know you a little bit more. Like I said, you've been in the industry a long time, but we'd love to hear a little about your own, you know, running history, maybe your favorite running story of your own that you have, uh, maybe a little bit of your educational background, if that's pertinent, or, and then just how you got into the running industry to begin with. 
Ooh, favorite running story. Um, probably qualifying for the Olympic trials at Boston by a mere four seconds after uh, wow. 26 miles, 385 yards, and uh, not being a sprinter and watching that clock go down on Boylston Street. Uh, you know, I felt like a uh, cowboy chasing a bull in a barnyard with uh, six-foot high fences and four-foot of manure. I didn't feel like I was moving anywhere. I was highly motivated, but, um, boy, I, I didn't know whether I, you know, that clock, uh, I, I was across the finish line before I knew whether I qualified for the Olympic trials or not. You wow. had to run 219.04. I ran 219 flat. Um, wow. That was pretty fun. I think the other uh, story out on the ranch in Nebraska where I grew up, uh, we were having a blizzard in January, and I was out, of course, running. Why, I don't know, but I did. And uh, big snow drifts, and uh, a bunch of the local boys were out drinking beer in their fancy new uh, Jeep. And, um, of course, they were stuck to their axle hubs or higher. And I come running along through the snow drift, and they're out scooping, and half of them are in the, the, the Jeep drinking beer, and the others are out scooping trying to get themselves out. And of course, I come up behind them and scare the hell out of them. It was like a, you know, it was like a mirage. And, you know, they're jumping and like, what the hell are you doing out in this snowstorm? And I said, well, you know, boys, the real question is, what the hell are you doing out? Because I'm still moving and you're stuck. We'll see you later. <laughs> yeah, and you grew up, you grew up in the Midwest then, right? You said, oh, yeah, uh, my family has a cattle ranch in uh, central Nebraska. And that's, uh, out near Broken Bow, Nebraska. Um, my track coach in college used to say, you know, Broken Bow is not the end of the world, but you can sure as hell see it from there. <laughs> and uh, we've had a ranch out there for 146 years. Wow. Amazing. So how did, you know, you, you were a runner in your own right, obviously Olympic trials qualifier. Um what 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 was your introduction into the running industry? How did you start to break into that direction? Well, I'm uh, you know uh, I was trying to avoid going to college because I'm dyslexic, so college was very tough, or school was, and I was trying to avoid going to college. So I read a book called uh, Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, where he circumnavigates the United States. Uh, it's a great book if you want to read it, and. Um, I figured, well, one way to postpone college is if I could figure out how to get sponsors and be the youngest person to run across the country, I could avoid college. And so I wrote for sponsorships. I wrote to, you know, I was, two, I was 17 years old, so I couldn't get Coors or any of the beer companies. And, you know, they had all the money and Kellogg's offered me all the Frosted Flakes I could eat. And um, <laughs> Nike offered me 26 pair of shoes and... Uh, Ralston Perina said I didn't have a dog with me, so they weren't going to sponsor me. And I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. Anyway, I was having a hard time finding a sponsor. And my my girlfriend at the time's father said, well, I know this guy who's a high up a executive at Montgomery Wards in Chicago. And I wrote him. He happened to be a trustee of the school I was going to at the time. And um, he said, you know, I can't help you, but I have a friend in uh, California who's an inventor. And he has invented the one-handled water faucet, you know, instead of two, one. And uh, he's working on a new shoe, and uh, maybe he could help you. And uh, a few weeks later, lo and behold, I get a call from, uh, I, I, I just found the letter that I wrote that guy, by the way. Hmm. 
month ago. Um, what year was um, this again, by the way? This was 1978. 78, okay. And um, um, the inventor said, well, you know, Stuart, I can't, uh, my shoe won't make it across the street, let alone across the country. Maybe you could help me. And um, he offered to fly me out over uh, Christmas break. He flew me to a place called Pebble Beach, California. I had never heard of Pebble Beach, California. And um, honest to goodness, the first day I was in Pebble Beach, it was kind of a, it was the, uh, it was uh, De- uh, December 28th, uh, 1978. I go out for a run on the 17-mile the drive. And this guy on a bicycle pulls up behind me. And, you know, then I could run pretty quick back in the day. And we're going up a little rise and... You know, I'm running about as fast as he's going up this little hill, and I say good morning, and he says good morning, and I said, hey, pretty nice neighborhood, huh? And he goes, yeah, first time to Pebble Beach? And I go, yes, it is. He goes, well, welcome to the neighborhood. It was Clint Eastwood. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he turned into his driveway about uh, 100 <gasps> yards uh, down the road. It's the, the only time I ever saw Clint Eastwood. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, I said, yeah, pretty nice neighborhood, huh? You must have thought I was the biggest smart aleck on the planet. But So those That's... are a couple running stories. But anyway, we this inventor had this, uh, he wanted to put air in shoes. This was before Nike had their air system. Mm-hmm. And I thought putting air in shoes was a good idea. He was working mostly in work shoes and dress shoes. And I said, hey, I think it's going to be the athletic market. And uh, you got to remember that right then shoes were selling for about, 30 bucks a piece. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the tailwind hadn't come out yet and it was, that's a, was the first $50 shoe. And mm-hmm. so, um, it, 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 you know, he offered me, uh, 500 bucks a month. I slept on the office floor. I'd make shoes every day and then I'd test them the next morning, tear them apart and do it again. Wow. And he gave me a car to drive, a Cadillac Grand or a, uh, Pontiac Grand Prix. And I would, I'd go down and stay at his house on the weekends uh, down in Pebble Beach, and I built a uh, relationship that uh, lasted until his wife passed away. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I had a 32-year, 32-or-3-year uh, 32 32 relationship with uh, George Cole and his, his wow. wife. And, um, and uh, that technology, you know, uh, I was such a great salesman, I took that to 94 shoe companies who threw me out on my ass. <laughs> and... Um, Reebok threw me out five times, and then they licensed it. And lo and behold, guys, uh, after eight years of failure, I became a overnight success and a genius. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then other inventors started talking to me. And of course, the big benefit of that experience was that I did go and see every footwear company, literally, I think, yeah. in America. Yeah. I was in places that you've never heard of, um, talking to shoe people you've never scene, but I was young enough and it was different enough that uh, as a 19, 20 year old guy, I could go in and I would see the president of, you know, Gib Ford at Converse or the president of Endicott Johnson or, um, you know, uh, Rob Strasser at at Nike was great to me. He rejected Hmm. me, but he gave me some great advice that I cherish to this day. And and that gave me an introduction to people. So while they thought they were, I was crazy for selling this air shoe, 
I built some relationships. You know, I always said I didn't mind getting no, I just didn't want to get hell no and never come back. And right. uh, generally, I was able to achieve that goal. But uh, what was the? It took uh, eight can years. I ask what the advice was that he that he gave Rob you? Rob Strasser. Uh, yeah. He, he, uh, this was, you know, again, it took eight years. Uh, he called me in. He put his big bear paw of an arm around me, and he says, "Stuart, I'm not going to buy this technology from you today." I was crestfallen, you know, one more rejection. It was about 88 at that point, you know, and so I slump and he goes, but Stuart, you're going to make a lot of money with this technology. Want to know why? Sure, Rob. Why? He says, because you can see it, feel it and touch it. And if you can see it, feel it and touch it, you can sell it. He says, I've got a different idea to make air visible, but the fact that you can see your air and move it and touch it, you will sell it. And, uh, you know, about nine months later, they came out with visible air. People forget that Nike Air was not tremendously successful until 1986, eight years after they introduced it, because it was really when they put the window, in, and you guys are too young to remember air shoes without windows, but when they put that window in it, people could see it. And and I've often wondered, you know, did I inspire Rob or did he have that idea before? But he couldn't have been more gracious. And I would see cool. him at meetings and, and you know, people would always, you know, he was, he was a powerful guy. And he would, he just would, he would always act like I was his best friend, you know, especially if it could help me sort of elevate myself and, and, uh, so what other, you know, as you progress from there, you had that 32-year relationship. What other companies have you, you know, been working for? What roles have you held there? Um, I know there's a lot in the innovation world. So just kind of give people a little window into that, and then we'll dive into some innovation things. I represented a lot of inventors, including the first guy that did lighted shoes. That was a great failure. Oh. Uh, we sold the first, I sold the first 200,000 lighted shoes, and Bob Campbell sold the next 200 million pair of lighted shoes. Um, so I worked, uh, helped independent inventors, and then I helped start a company called Skydex, which still exists. Skydex licensed a technology to Nike called Tuned Air. And um, uh, that technology went on and was sold to the Pentagon for blast mitigation in Iraq and Afghanistan and reduced major force injuries by about 90%. We created a helmet cushioning system for the military that reduced G-force from 440 to 92, and that's still being sold. Uh, fortunately, there's not as much need for it now, and that company exists. I started uh, helped to launch a company that was doing the first carbon fiber in footwear, which is now uh, performance material or Torre performance material out of carbon uh out of Camarillo, that company still exists. They were doing orthotics when I started with them, and we sold the first carbon fiber plates ever in the market to Etonic and then Foot Joy and Reebok, the Graphlite series. And then I finally committed. Uh, I finally um, committed the sin of uh, corporate administration. Uh, my friend Angel Martinez uh, was the president, and CEO of Deckers, and he said, "Stuart, you've always been selling technologies." From the outside in, he said, that's hard work, um, you know, and why don't you come inside and start an innovation practice and, uh, and help us innovate from the inside because you've had so much experience trying to do it from the outside. 
And it was sort of like putting the uh, leading um, jewel thief in charge of the uh, the cash box or something, I guess. And uh, so I, I had a lot of fun. That was a great job. Uh, you know, there's nothing easier than innovating for a corporation when you have a CEO that empowers you. He he told everyone in the organization, look, you don't have to do what Stuart says. You don't have to take on the new technologies that he's advocating. You just can't tell him to stop. And that, that ability to balance the scale with the CEO's authority that no one could stop me um, was quite empowering. Because most organizations, you know, the chief legal counsel can stop you. The finance chief can stop you. The marketing chief can stop you. The sales guy can stop you. The the head of the cafeteria in the lunchbox can stop you. I mean, everybody can say no. And he, he really had this sense that he, he equalized the power di- dynamic between all of the normal bases of power and innovation, and, I, and, it, and it worked quite well. And um, then I went over and ran Shoes for Cruise, uh, which is, I think, the largest direct-to-consumer uh, footwear brand, uh, you know, nobody has ever heard of it. They sell directly to McDonald's and and uh, restaurant chains, slip-resistant fo- uh, shoes. Uh, Stan Smith, the founder of that company, he should be in the Footwear Hall of Fame. Nobody knows about him, but he really pioneered true slip-resistant footwear and direct footwear. So you'd sell it to McDonald's, and and McDonald's would pay it, or a restaurant would take it out of the employee's paycheck, you know, three three or four payments uh, over a month or two-month period of time so that um, workers would be safe. And um, and then I started Blue Maca. So it's uh, – I just enjoy um, – I don't know. I, I, I enjoy the challenge of new. Uh, right. I, I kind of get bored and um, with um, status quo. And, and in those 32 years, you – got to have change all the time, you know, with just working with different inventors. Then you had those couple other stints and we'll get into Blue Maca at the end. But when you've had so much experience with people coming with ideas and inventors, so we kind of wanted to dive into the idea of innovation within the running industry with you and just kind of hear some thoughts. So when you reflect on everything that you've been doing, that you've done in the past um, and that you've learned from other people that as you worked with them, what do you think are some of the things that it requires to have success when you're innovating something? Like, when do you see something you're like, this is going to be something that's going to succeed, or you see something like, hey, this is going to fall short? Are there any common threads that you start to see when it comes to innovation? And maybe things you've seen recently that are like, hey, that's that makes sense of why that took off or not. Well, you know, I, I think that when you when you talk about innovation, you have to think two levels. There, you have to think about what what are the product ideas that succeed and fail, and also what are the the corporate dynamics that succeed and fail. And uh, you really have to understand if you're going to innovate that corporations are set up to be innovation condoms, and they put every conceivable um, blocking method in the way of innovation because because it doesn't fit neatly into a plan. It's hard to predict the future. So almost every organization uh, overemphasizes doing what they did last year, just doing it better. 
um, you know, Converse worked themselves out of the basketball performance basketball business because they could never adapt or change. They just kept doing what they'd been doing since 1922. Um, and, and so ideas that change, I think that uh, for ideas to work, they have to, one, uh, interest the consumer. What is the, why are you doing this? You know, and, and does the consumer almost immediately get it? Why did air succeed when they put a window in it? Because you could see it. Oh, that makes sense, right? Why didn't it work before? They couldn't see it. They got it intellectually. You could explain it, but they couldn't see it. Why did Hoka work? Because it looked so different. And then when you put it on your feet, it felt different. So I think you have to arrest the, the user's mind. And then when it gets put on their foot, it has to do what you say it's going to do. You know, you don't have to teach a dog to eat a steak, right? But if you have to put a new shoe on somebody's foot and say, well, you know, you need to spend a week running in this different way and you, you know, and, and you have to have your gait do this and your that do that and, and then don't you feel great? If you have to keep explaining it, I think it's, problematic. Um, I don't know if that's a great answer, but do something different that feels different, that functions differently, that the consumer finds to be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And you know, almost, although it's different, it still feels somewhat of a natural, like you don't have to fight it. You don't have to fight right. into it. It just kind of, it works, but it works differently. Yeah, and you, you think about, you know, one of the most amazing things you have to think about with footwear, and this is where I believe the footwear industry, those of us who've been in executive positions with company, it's hard to think about, if, if you went out and you said, what are the greatest inventions of the, from 1935, or 1940 to 1970, I think almost every one of those great inventions would have come from Adidas, you know, Horst Dossler. He invented a shoe for every track and field event, right? I mean, meaningful changes. Converse and their their Converse high top and, and the, the Chuck tail, that came from a company, right? And then the introduction of the midsole, I think it was... Uh, uh, just the concept of a midsole came in, uh, you know, there's who did it first. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but all of that came from a shoe company. If you look at the greatest inventions of the last 40 years, I have a hard time thinking of any of them that have actually come from a shoe company. Air didn't come from a, you know, Nike Air didn't come from a shoe company. It came from an inventor and about 30 or 40 companies rejected it. Carbon fiber came from carbon fiber companies. Now, I think that shoe companies have really done a good job, again, 30 years after it was introduced, into applying it in a great new way, all right? And so that, that should count. Um, but if you think about uh, uh, boost foam or supercritical foams, those came from outside companies. And I don't know, 10, 15, 20 companies rejected Boost because it didn't look like PU and EVA. Um, Hoka, which is, I think, the most impactful technology in the footwear space in the last, certainly in the last uh, 
12 years, but probably in the last 20. It's one of the few technologies that every single footwear brand is copying. Everybody has oversize. Everybody has rocker. You know, that came from two French guys uh, working out there in the mountains in, in uh, uh, you know, in France, in, in the Alps, Chamonix. And you just keep going down the list. And what, what does this tell you? This tells you that if you're going to lead an innovation, you have to be open to ideas no matter where they come from. Because I don't, and I don't, there's a, all of these footwear companies have brilliant people. But there are more brilliant people outside their company than inside their company. And therefore, you know, you're going to have to sort through 50, 100, 200 bad ideas. But you better be alert enough when the big idea comes and you, you can't simply just reject everything. And too many companies re- reject. I, I mean, I swear to you, even with the success that I've had, if I had the next great thing and placed a phone call, I would get run through the gauntlet and treated like a raw rookie because, oh, you know, well, it's not on the business plan or, you, you know, we got the lawyer who says we're at risk for doing this and we can't look at that. And it gets and, and I think I think the other challenge with footwear right now is most of the technology development is happening in the at the suppliers in Asia and uh, and. That puts everybody sort of on the same plane of innovation. And it also means that there's a lot less expertise within the brand itself in terms of how does it actually work or what tweak can we make it. There's just a lot of reliance on vendors. Um, And I think that that's, you know, that's completely different than the great technology companies like Tesla or Apple or IBM in the day, uh, you know, those guys are, uh, are not generally outsourcing the, the development of raw technology. So footwear is just a little different. Yeah. It almost seems like as, as you were talking about some of this stuff and where innovation is really happening and how it really happens, there's almost like micro innovation that's happening within the running shoe industry where companies are taking the technologies and geometries that already exist and just kind of repackaging them. But the real innovation happens when something kind of surprises you. You kind of brought up Hoka as an example. I think like you said, the Air is another example where it's those things are coming from outside. They're not just like repackaging new things within the running industry. It's got to come from some other uh, some other mind where you're not just stuck in running because there it's seeing something outside of the running industry that they think, why don't you try to put this in a running shoe? Uh, we might not think about it if we're buried in the, in the running world too much. Um, and there's a lot more brain power on, I mean, I remember when, you know, new balance invented the Achilles notch and you think now you guys go, Oh, well, yeah, well it used to be, you get your pair of shoes, you take your scissors and cut off the damn Achilles thing because it'd come up and, and uh, create a blister, right? And they created the little thing over the toes so your toes didn't keep going through the mesh. And so there's a lot of things that have piled one on another where these footwear brands have, have added a lot of comfort features. But raw innovation is it's widespread, let's put it that way. And how, 
how the brands apply. I mean, what people are doing with carbon fiber and what Nike did with their carbon fiber, um, you know, I mean, I'm surprised. We introduced carbon fiber to footwear in 1986. Brooks had a propulsion plate, essentially what they're doing now in 1987. And that propulsion plate uh, was placed in a little different, you know, it was placed between the outsole and the midsole. But it took another 20 years for people to really say, hey, how do we use carbon fiber, you know, like a pole vault where it has that real spring? And, you know, I'm, I'm look at me. I, I introduced carbon fiber and I never did that. And I didn't come up with a way to do that. And, and Nike and the others deserve a lot of credit for doing that. But they're taking base technologies and, and reapplying them, if you will. Yeah. I think another company that popped into my mind, and you mentioned Brooks, um, you know, I've, and you mentioned a couple of things. One was that there was, which company do you say worked them, uh, Converse worked themselves out of the, out of the basketball world by just doing one tick at a time. Um, and you know, there's been a couple within the running shoe geek world. There's a couple companies over the last, you know, five, 10 years that were kind of accused of doing that and that they were becoming irrelevant. You know, people talked about ASICs that way until the last couple of years, People talk about Brooks a little bit like that right now, but I think, you know, something that I think they're starting to do is Brooks just came out with last year that we haven't tested this shoe, but it was that called the Aurora BL from their Blue Line Labs. And you talked about visibility of the thing and they put like a fake, I think it's a fake little injection looking area, but they talked about how, you know, this foam is injected with, you know, air and foam or whatever. And so they're trying to create that visual that you were talking about while also creating a shoe that looked weird. I mean, it just looked different. And so they're trying to catch people's eyes, leading innovation that way. So that seems to match like a lot of the advice that you're giving or the wisdom you've gleaned about innovation. So, Well, uh, look, Nike or Adidas launched a whole series. I, you know, really the biggest thing that's happened in the last 10 years is foam, right? And, you know, Definitely. for the when Nike came out with Air, we were all trying to figure out how to get away from foam. You know, it was... It was gels and this is and that's and the other thing. And then they come out with this super critical foam, again, that about, I don't know, 20, 30 companies rejected from BASF because it didn't look like what they had done, right? And, and, uh, and Adidas then started a foam race, and uh, that foam race has resulted in a lot of good things. And so... It took it took BASF to make it, and then it took uh, people at Adidas that had the vision to say, hey, we're okay not looking the same, and they've built a franchise around foam. And, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago if you could build a franchise around foam, I'd go, what the hell? No way. Foam's dumb. And, hmm. uh, you know, look at me. I'm now in the foam business. So, right. <laughs> so I, I think you, you just have to be careful, you know— we all have some wins and we all have some losses and we all see some things and we all miss some things. I certainly would have missed super critical foams or I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have bet a lot of money that we we're going to spend 10 years pioneering new foams, you know. But that shows you also the power of these big chemical companies to, to, to drive change. Now, we can talk about how good foam is for the environment. It's Foam, you know, is really, you know, that's like calling a, a, 
a high-octane cocktail, a drink. You know, uh, foam is plastic. And we talk about plastic and we talk about foam, and foam sort of gets a pass because it's not called plastic. But it's really just expanded plastic. It's worse than plastic in a water bottle because you've taken two or three parts and you've blown them up and you're never going to you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And uh, But anyway, it's... I guess that's a digression, but... Um, and we talked before this. We're it's, gonna it's true, work though, with, yeah. We're going to work with Stuart on a... You know, we're working on the, some sustainability pieces in the running industry, and he's got a lot of experience there. We'll talk about it a bit more when we get to Lumaca, um, just, to, just to touch on it today. But I think another... Uh, question that we had for you, something that we talk about here at Docs of Running is that innovation is usually a number of steps ahead of research regarding that innovation. So, you know, something like Hoka is going to come out with their rocker or minimalist footwear is going to come out. And then 10 years later, you have the summit on minimalist footwear. And it's already after that, you know, that change in the way that shoes are designed comes. When, when you're, you're sitting on the inside of innovation, and I guess our, our question for you, um, even before our question, I think one of the things that we see is our, our, our part here as people who are able to analyze biomechanics, work with a lot of injured people, we kind of look at what are these innovations actually doing to the foot, to the mechanics, to people, to injury, risk, that kind of thing. Um, but when, when you look at your, you know, the process, is there a role of research alongside innovation or testing these things in a lab? Or is it a lot of innovation with a lot of ideas and just kind of hoping it works out? Or are there things that validate it along the way? Well, if you're truly innovating, you have to validate uh, along the way. Uh, you know, you know, R&D, let's call research and development, yeah. is how you turn dollars into ideas. And innovation is how you turn ideas into dollars. And the research that you're talking about, I would call it testing and efficacy. And um, I believe that it's really imperative that there is real-world efficacy to technologies. Like if, and here's, for example... What's the most important piece of equipment a runner wears? Shoes. Why is it important? Because it is a protection against impact. And, you know, this is why I really went after Hoka when I first saw it. I couldn't... You could have blindfolded me and I could have worn any brand of running shoes on the market and I couldn't have told you what brand I was wearing and neither could the brand president of that company, okay? And I think that if you looked at the data, there wasn't any significant reduction in injuries in, from better, quote-unquote, better and better running shoes from 1975, you know, when midsoles became popular and, until 2010. So... If we were making certainly more expensive running shoes and and so-called better running shoes and had all this technology, you know, flubber and wubber and dubber and blah, 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 why didn't 
injury rates go down and why didn't people's knees feel better? And so when I saw Hoka, we all know, uh, you know, as physical therapists, more force, force goes through the ball of the foot than the heel. Why did we always put more cushioning in the heel than the ball of the foot? It's back ass words, right? I mean, that's like putting your football helmet on your, your butt. <laughs> and so, so what Hoka really did, the, the genius of Hoka is that they put more cushioning under the ball of the foot because while the peak G's in the ball of the foot are not higher, there is more force going through that foot because it comes down and slaps, drives downward, and then pushes off. So there's a lot of force going under, and you, we've cushioned it less well. And so by putting a rocker under, you gut to the forefoot without slapping. Then in that point of dwell, you, you put more cushioning there. And so, you know, if the existing way we were making shoes, we were all locked into the triangular shape, if injury rates weren't coming down and we had all this technology, shouldn't we try a different geometry, right? Can't we just allow ourselves to say why? If it isn't working, try something different. Now, I don't have any data to prove, but I would bet that people that run in Hoka are probably less, um, have less impact on their joints and body than people that don't. I don't know. But, you know, if you put twice as much foam under your foot, it, it could help as long as it's not unstable. My experience was I'd been running for many, many years, and my knees would hurt all the time. And I started running in Hoka, and for 10 years, my knees haven't hurt. Now, that's an anecdote. But I think that other people are having that experience, which is why it's grown from, you know, um, zero to 850 or a billion-dollar company in 10 years while facing the biggest marketing behemoths on the planet. And it's why everybody in the footwear industry who lost their mind and made barefoot shoes, running shoes, is now copying Hoka. Right. So Matt, maybe you, if, do you want to, we love to talk about foam and cushioning and stack and kind of the benefits. What, what do we know, you know, from kind of the third party research on, you know, increased cushioning rocker soles and do we decrease forces? Do we change them? What have, what do we talk about there? So, so that's the challenge is because, you know, Stuart, you mentioned that these like Hoka's design, there's so many variables that have changed. That's why research is really hard because when you're doing good research, and I'm learning this as a PhD student right now, as I'm getting my, like just torn apart every single day with every single idea I have, which is again, to help me refine this. When you change a lot of variables, it becomes difficult to figure out which one is actually making a change and who it's making a change for. So we know from the evidence, ironically, that more cushioning actually doesn't seem to change impact forces. It sometimes can actually increase internal loading in the joint because people will land harder. However, right, even though we're seeing that biomechanically, we'll still get the testimonial reports that people are feeling less symptoms in certain areas. So that's where you got to ask, you know, yes, there's more cushioning. There's there's a comfort filter, right, which Ben Onig was really a pioneer of and we're still working on. So is it, you know, we're seeing research, the biomechanical data is showing that it can actually increase joint forces, which is not actually necessarily a bad thing. OK, but then we're also there's a comfort factor. But then you also have the fact that there's the rocker, which is going to change where you're loading. So we know shoes that shoes don't change the amount of force 
but they can certainly shift it. And that's one of the things that I really like about Hoga's design is that the rocker shifts it up higher. And so right now in the, in the, in the PT world, there's a big shift going, trying to get people to use their hips more because we sit so much, we don't tend to utilize that. A rockered sole actually forces you to use more hip mechanics, which is really good because you need good, strong hip mechanics for your knee. So there's no evidence on that, but that's kind of some of the, the pieces. So what you're feeling is not wrong. It's just the exact mechanism. We're not sure. Right. And again, you know, if the dog likes the steak, he's going to eat the steak. You know, I like the steak because uh, my knees don't hurt. I don't know why my knees yeah, don't hurt. Exactly. I can't tell you why my knees don't yeah. hurt, but my knees don't hurt. And I know there's millions of people like me, right? Uh, yes. But so you were talking about testing. But it, here's <laughs> yeah. my big sort of thing that I have never understood. If, if, if your shoes are your football helmet, right? Not one single person, not one single brand can tell you when those shoes have lost their ability to absorb shock. That is like driving down the road and saying, you know, this airbag's going to work for a while. Well, when's my airbag not going to work? Well, we don't know. Well, is it 30 miles? Oh, yeah, it's 30 miles. Well, is it a thousand? So to me, one of the pieces of research that would be really helpful is I want to know when those shoes have lost about 12 to 15% of their cushioning because you go on the website of every company, oh, our shoes last three to 500 miles. Now, how, how credible is that? So I weigh, I weigh 270 pounds and my shoes are going to last for three to 500 miles or, you know, my wife weighs 98 pounds and her shoes are going to last three to 500. I mean, and, and if we are going to protect people, if we believe that running shoes protect the body, don't we have a right to know and a responsibility to tell us when the damn things are wearing out? And, you know, people say, oh, when your knees start hurting. And, okay, that, that's one way to do it, and that's how many of it. But, you know, we've got things that will tell us you know, how fast your heart is going and how this does and your pace and your energy and your stride and, you know, how many drinks you had last night and when you should wake up. And we don't even know how the most important piece of equipment that runners wear, we don't know how long it lasts. And then we're designing a whole bunch of running shoes for people that run seven minute miles. Oh, you know, this is eight ounces and 7.5 ounces and you know, we just ran two hours in it in the marathon. And the average pace of a runner in the United States is 10 and a half minute for men and 12 and a half minute for women. Who the hell cares? And I know it's sexy and you can market it that way. And, you know, I mean, but it's if we really care about protecting runners, make a shoe for runners that run 10 minute miles and 12 minute miles. Why isn't that sexy? Why isn't that important? Why don't we have, you want sustainability? Stop making shoes that wear out after 150 miles. And some of these new supercritical shoes, you can just throw them away at 100 miles or 150 miles because they're no damn good. So I, I actually have an answer for you on that question of going, when do shoes wear out? So we have some unpublished data that I did in my undergraduate um, with an amazing professor there. We're doing some research 
for Reebok and Crocs, and we were trying to answer that question. How soon does it take for running shoes to wear out? We took a variety of shoes with a variety of foams and a variety of different price points as well. And we had, I forget how many, like, like tons of runners come in, tons of people testing this stuff. And we found consistently, no matter the price point or the cushioning, the shoes wore out after about 100 to 80 to 100 miles. And then after that, it was the 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 protective nature of the shoe went just dropped, went downhill really quickly. And how comfortable it was and how long it lasted for a runner at that point wasn't about the foam. It wasn't about the shoe. It was about the runner, i.e. how long could that individual compensate for the degrading sole and not the shoe? So basically 80, 100 miles, most of these shoes were done. And then it was how well can you compensate? Well, I, I'm delighted to hear that. And, uh, you know, first of all, I'm very impressed with anybody that can get a PhD in anything. I mean, I... I don't have one yet. I'm working on it. But, yeah, I was in half the class made the top half possible. So uh, I'm glad somebody can answer these questions. But but really, you know, I, I've i been around it long enough. So my, my comment, go down and buy a, a $30 shoe and throw them away every week. And God you know, from a sustainability standpoint, please don't do that. But, but, but that's what it's, it's frustrating to me that shoes can go from, you know, I started buying my first pair of running shoes cost me $27 and I had to save about three weeks or a month to get that. And now they're selling for $200 and they last 150 miles. I always say 150 miles and throw them out. And I just think that's wrong because I think we can do better. But until somebody documents how long these shoes last, and I think it's unfortunate that the brands are telling people they're three to five, three to 500 miles. That's like saying, well, how far is New York City? Well, it's somewhere between 1,500 miles and 3,000 miles. I mean, how can you be off? You're a company that has lab resources from here to kingdom come. You're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on development and innovation. You know more about running than anyone, and you can't tell us when your damn shoes wear out? Give me a break. It's funny, though, Stuart, that like your knowledge, and you you mentioned the number, and you're like, yeah, like 150. It's funny that when I've talked to anybody with your level of experience that's been around the industry that long, that's anywhere between 100 and 150 miles is the most common thought about people who have experience in footwear and yet you know we're still saying oh three to five hundred miles but anybody who knows and you don't even they don't even know that this research has been done and you already knew it was in that that end number that's that's interesting i'm curious like how and it's probably i'm guessing experience but how else did you know that shoes just seemed to last that long my father used to tell me out on the ranch you know he'd say uh stuart College is a great place. It's just a damn poor place to learn much. And I believe that experience, if you are a sincere student of experience, experience is a tremendous teacher. Uh, and so the benefit of being in the footwear industry 43 years is I have constantly been testing new shoes. I mean... I've always had a new pair of shoes on because I was testing this or testing that. And I just, I don't know how many pair of shoes. Look, I've run about 95,000 miles in my life, right? I've been consistently running since I was 14 years old and I'm 62 years old. 
And when something happens over and over and over, you better learn, hey, and, and I, I had pretty good biomechanics, right? I, so experience was the teacher. We have the ability and the technology to make a pair of running shoes that lasts for 500 miles or 700 miles, and that would do so much for the planet. Now, it doesn't do much for retail sales, and it, it, you know, it doesn't fit nicely into you know, what's the pretty color with the, the, you know, the yoga top and the yoga pants, and you know, doesn't make my butt look good and all that stuff. But if you really care about the environment and you really care about protecting runners, we need to know how long shoes last and we need to make shoes last much longer than they're lasting. And go ahead and charge me, um, charge me more if that's what you need to do. But this, this just, it's, this is professional malpractice to make performance running shoes that last 150 miles. It's justifiable if you're trying to run a two-hour marathon or you're competing in the Olympics. Be my guest. Do it. But how come every major chemical corporation in the world, name them all, and every major running shoe company in the world is producing shoes that last 150 miles the same amount of time they lasted in 1990 and 1980? It's just, it's a real opportunity. Maybe, la- maybe well, they, less, though. Well, these new super know. critical, super lightweight shoes are certainly, I think some of those are going out at 50 to 80 miles. Yeah, yeah. wasn't it Brooks with the Hyperion Elite, the first version, didn't they say that it was 50 miles? That yeah, they said get? it. I- ironic. They said it, yeah. I have like, they were straight I have a hundred, that, that, that shoe is so firm, I have like 100 plus miles on it and it feels exactly the same. So it's very durable, but there's just no bounce to it. Well, that's the other thing that's we could it's all so stiff. Yeah. yeah, we could. We, yeah. You know, if you you could make the you could nail a piece of plywood to the bottom of your shoes and it last, you know, or whatever concrete. But <laughs> that's not concrete. the point. You need compression and you need. Yeah. So the the idea is, how do you make it soft enough to be compliant? I mean, it's it's easy to get longer durability if you make it super hard. And if you can't make it hard, why don't you make it in pods so that you can replace it? But you know. Go ahead like if you that. want and drive down the road and say, okay, we don't know when your airbag's going to go out. Good luck. And then people forget. And then they wonder, how many people in your office do you see with shoes that should have been thrown out six months, a year ago, or so two many, years ago? So many people that I see. 20, 20 years ago, I was like, these. You should. the release person that I saw yesterday had a pair of, it was like, one of the original Keanos and I'm like, why are you still? And it's like falling apart. I'm like, why are you still wearing this? And I'm like, when did you get these? And it's like, Oh, like, you know, I think like 20 years ago. I'm like, <laughs> it was yeah. a dark and stormy and night. Why you're f- yeah. And you wonder why your knees hurt. hurt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, awesome. but it's well, that post isn't doing anything anymore. <laughs> well, sorry. I don't have an opinion on this yeah. and I, you know, but this is just, this is it's professional important. malpractice. Think, it's professional is, malpractice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, even it, Stuart, even to this day, we're still getting evidence on injury rates and they, they haven't changed, right? To this day, they've been exactly the same since the invention of footwear. And it's not saying that footwear isn't good and it does work for many people. There are people where you can get them in the right shoe 
and they feel better and their injury rates may change. But overall, it hasn't changed. Well, you know why the caveman died when he was 30, don't you? He was running barefoot. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That doesn't do very good things for the barefoot, uh, the minimalist uh, movement, huh? Well, I mean, look, (laughs) God bless you. I can't run in them because it hurts. And I don't willingly choose pain over comfort. And uh, I don't care how strong my feet are. I think there's a place for barefoot running. It's on the beach. It's in the sand. It's on grass. Uh, I, I think if, you, if everybody lived next to a sand dune or a soft beach and uh, a soft grass, they should be running barefoot. But uh, taking your barefoot shoes out on concrete, um, uh, uh, well, I graduated in the bottom of the class, but I'm smart enough not to do that. Yeah. Well, I think it's important too to just remember that there is a comfort factor in different shoes. I mean, we, we, we say shoes are tools all the time. And it's important to recognize that a different shoe may work for a different person. And forces cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transferred across different areas of the body there upon landing. And so it's important to look at the geometry of the shoe. Does it work for that person? All of the companies I genuinely think are all making pretty good product right now. And it's just a matter of finding what works for the person. And Well, they they are making good product. The question, you know, but it's more complicated than that. Totally. Just tell me when yeah. it wears out. Tell me how much water you're using to use it. Tell me why you're, you, you know, why we have to buy so many of them. Yeah. Tell me why it's so, such, you know, it's. This is great. There's a lot of, there are a lot of things that we could keep talking about. But I do need to push us to the next part of the segment here. Um, and it's just a last, maybe, you know, a five minute, five to 10 minute closing to kind of introduce a little bit about Blue Maca, which is your most recent endeavor. We have been wearing uh, one of the insoles that you guys have been uh, creating, uh, the Connect insole. But uh, give, give us a little intro to what is Blue Maca. Well, tell me, how's uh, it working for you? I was like going to say the the big thing is we're going to be we'll be putting out our full review so you'll get you'll get all of our thoughts, um, but do you, do one of you guys want to go first, or do you want me to go, David? You go. I think the material is great as far as shock absorption, but it does add some volume within the shoe, and so since the insole tends to sit up a little bit higher, it does tend to require a little bit more of an adaptive upper on the footwear piece itself which is one thing I have noticed in terms of lacing and locking it down. Um, I actually, the, the texture thing, I'm still trying to figure out whether or not I, I, I like it. I, I get the, the concept and the idea. And, I, and this was in a separate email thread, but we were talking about team sports. And I, I could see the use there. I could definitely see just having that traction and connectivity to the ground. I'm still trying to figure out if I like it for linear running. But yeah, I, overall, I think, that's a good I think question. The, yeah. But I think the actual compound of itself is pretty promising, and I think it does increase that stack ever so slightly and reduce some of those ground, not ground reaction forces, but perceived impact upon loading. I've, I've put it in several racing flats, and I've put it in several trainers, and I've played around with it a little bit, and it does seem to change the perceived landing forces upon, upon landing. And so I think there's some promise there, and I think it just depends on the right usage for the right person. I think another quick thing, just so that for people who are listening who don't know anything about this, one of the main parts of this connect insole, K-O-N-N-E-C-T, 
the idea is that the the top of the insole actually is a very grippy material compared to any other kind of insert you have in your shoe where you could slide your foot around on it. This has a material that the sock kind of sticks to. Um, and so you can definitely feel that in running. You got to, when I, you know, I'd say the, I would agree with DJ on a lot of the perceived comfort, some of that increased stack. Um, it does have a drop, four millimeter drop to it as well. So it can change some of these shoes that I had issues with, like Carbon X3 was too voluminous for me and I couldn't get a lockdown. So this kind of made a bit of an adaptive ability there for that. Um, the Ultra, we were testing Ultra shoe and this gave me a little bit of a drop instead of being a zero millimeter. So, um, and the foam itself feels feels nice and it's definitely grippy. Um, and, and when you're putting the, I don't know if you noticed this, Stuart, but putting the shoe in, you really got to loosen the laces. Otherwise you it's kind of sliding well, around. I mean, it's a piece of equipment. I mean, this is a jock strap, not a boxer short. You got to put stuff in the right place. Yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be secured. And I, I think it was these all were a little bit short. Like the size nine um, insert was a little bit shorter than my shoe. So if I wasn't careful, it would slide forward a little bit. I'd say that was one of the things where if it was just longer and then I just cut it to size, I don't know if that would be a viable thing. But um, yeah, the cushioning is definitely nice. And more robust than a typical insert. Let me jump in here a little bit. So blue maca, blue means blue earth, blue water, blue sky. We're committed to that. And maca is a Native American word for earth. So blue earth. And it's also a Hawaiian word for beloved one. So it's really about how do we take care of things. So the one thing I like about the what you just talked about, the blue maca connect insole, is none of you mentioned that it's 85% recycled content. So the foam, 85% of the foam in those insoles, we literally gathered up from the back of a shoe factory and it would have been on its way to a landfill or a, a burn pile, an incinerator to pollute the planet if we hadn't gathered it up. There's nothing wrong with that foam. It wasn't squashed. It was trim waste, right? And that happens to be a super critical foam that you're testing there. And I will guarantee you it will last a heck of a lot longer than 150 miles. Um, the connect insole that you mentioned. So I love the fact you were talking about the performance of the insole, but you never mentioned that it's recycled material. Uh, I think that's cool because one of the things I think you fight in making uh, um, products that have a lower carbon footprint or are better for the environment, they think, well, if it's recycled, it can't be as good. And uh, when you compare it to the same thickness of insole, Pound for pound, ounce for ounce, thickness for sickness, that will compare with any virgin foam insole on the planet Earth. Okay? And we could make them thinner. You know, I know the aftermarket, it's 10 millimeters thick in the heel and uh, six in the forefoot. Maybe we should go down to three in the forefoot or taper it. We can do all of that to adjust for the fit. But the Connect insole, the basic concept was we spent a lot of time on traction in athletic footwear cleats, uh, outsole patterns, and so forth, because we want the foot to be able to tell the shoe when to stop. And when the shoe stops, we want it to be stopped because there is no performance benefit to slipping, right? If, you, if you're doing any athletic sport, slipping does not matter. So Right now, what happens in most shoes is the shoe stops and your foot keeps going. That's why when you're hiking, you slide down and crash your toes or running downhill. 
Uh, it's why people blow out the side of their basketball shoes. I mean, basketball shoes are essentially made so if it were a car and a road, they would just put up guardrails, and every time you hit the guardrail, you'd bounce back to the middle of the road. That is not how performance should work. We know in track and field, we want a permanent or a very close connection between the foot and the spikes. Or if you're jumping, you need to stop and, and change the direction of those forces from stopped to up. But if you stop and slide and go up, you're not going to jump as high, right? So the question is, where do you use it? Uh, the San Francisco Giants had, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 of their players. And we didn't call them and ask them. Uh, Mike Yastrzemski started using them. Then he started talking about them. And, and you know, the hitting coach found them. And because when you hit a baseball, you don't want to be sliding back to your heels and then trying to hit because you're going the wrong direction to deliver power to the ball. And, you know, it was kind of their one of their secret weapons last season. And... So running, I, I am not sure it provides much benefit on a road run or a flat run or even a track run. But when you go out on a trail and even where you have three inch changes and uh, side hill lies, I don't like going on a trail and my one foot lands on the side and I slide over. And so I love it on dirt and uneven terrain for running. What its efficacy will be on the roads, I don't know. We know it's great for golf because why do you want your cleats in the ground in golf and then your foot slides around? But the, the tacky surface that we put on or sticky surface on the top is a different. We've changed the coefficient of friction between the sock and the, and the shoe. Socks are made of cloth. Top covers of insoles are made of cloth. And so they slide. You just cannot tell me that that's beneficial for most sports, any start-stop sports. So that was the idea. And, uh, uh, but we do make an insole that has a regular fabric top cover on it. Uh, we call it our athletic insole or our comfort insole. That top cover happens to be 100% recycled water bottles. Um, so... We think it's really cool that pro teams are using a product that's 85% re recycled and it works super well and, and we'll refine sizes and, you know, do we need to make it thinner and where yeah. does it work? But we'd love any feedback and this is where you talk about testing. Right. You know, since nobody has made an insole right. this way, it's hard to say it does this. I, I just think you have to try it. That's not, you can be the gold standard. Yeah. Oh no, I was just saying I'm really happy to hear about all the versatile testing for the footwear as well because the fit of a cleat is very different than the fit of a running shoe or a racing flat or track spike, etc. And so that is reassuring to me to also know that the fit probably is much more dialed in for those that have played team sports. I played baseball for a long time. Those cleats are they're pretty tight in there. And so the, the fit's much more dialed in, almost like a track spike, but it's definitely more robust to start, stop, cut, do those types of movements. And so that I, I can see why it fits the way it fits. Well, and we're, we made a universal insole, right? It was sort of predicated on great... It also, despite the fact that you're more stable, you have a lot of cushioning. So it's really... I really hope you'll take some time, Dave, and say, you know, does this sticky technology work? And and then say, well, we, for this activity, we need it in a thinner profile or a thicker profile or a different profile, because those two things are 
you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're trying to understand the technology and then we can work on fit. Right now we have, you know, universal fit. We're making them from size 5 to 17. And we made them in each of those whole sizes because we didn't want trimming, too much trimming to go on. Uh, for you, Nathan, we could give you a size 10 and you could trim a right. little bit. But I don't want to trim a whole two or three inches of foam off the front right. because that's wasteful, right? That's waste, yeah. But but really, anything you guys can do to to say, hey, and look, I'm not, we're not married, right? Uh, I want to know if the the tacky or grip top is salubrious to performance. Where does it work? Why does it work? Because <laughs> again, this is innovation, right? I didn't invent insoles. But it just never made sense to me that you, your shoes stop and your foot keeps going. I mean, here we are in 2022 and hiking shoes, people are still talking about Oh, my foot slides. And then, the so how are we going to solve, how, yeah, our, our toes slide into the front and I have yep. blisters. And how do we solve it? Well, we just crank the hell out of them. We just tie them down. So now you're, you're restricting the blood flow over your navicular. So this shoe allows you to lace your shoes normally, not put your foot in a cast. And I will also say it really seems to work for people who have low volume foot or narrow feet because they're kind of sloshing around in their running shoes or their hiking shoes. Mm -hmm. And so somebody with a narrow foot or a low volume foot seems to be, it seems to enhance their experience. Um, um, so I, I, Hey, if it doesn't work, you know, we don't have to make it, but mm -hmm. if it, if it works, let's find out where and how and, and, um, you know, we should let your listeners go on bluemaka.com and uh, we'll give you a code and and um, let them get a little discount. Stuart, I think the, the biggest thing, what I'm excited about, I, I didn't get a pair, but I've been able to hear from David and Nathan about this and then also hearing from you saying, you know, in terms of direction changes, one of the challenges I've had from a lot of patients, given that I tend to specialize more in footwear, is a lot of foot and ankle issues due to shoe compression, especially not just, you know, trail running, like you said, one of the most common things and outside of that as well in the footwear industry is going, hey, we know we slide back and forth. We're just going to fix this by just cranking down and compressing the foot as much as possible, which... You know, the foot and ankle doesn't work like that. It The whole thing is designed to be able to spread, move, and do different things. If you take that away, you start taking away blood supply, blood supply to nerves, which is why we have such a big issue with nerve compression in the foot, neuromas, all that kind of stuff. So especially when I was working at one of the local universities here and I was trying to figure out, like, how can I help? Because, again, my expertise is in running footwear, but then trying to help some of these athletes who are playing basketball, playing soccer, and I'm looking at the shoes and going... This is like the most unanatomic thing I've ever seen in my life. Like who who designed this? This looks nothing like a foot. There's like like the mechanics are not changing. And then but now when you say this, it's like, okay, that makes sense that the only way to find stability is just locking everything in. But you turning, twisting, like if your foot can't move and stabilize, no wonder we have so many ankle sprains and ACL tears in so many of these other athletic well, sports and it's well, just like and again i i uh, my experience and i again i could be wrong but if your foot if you're planting your foot and trying to change direction and the side of your foot goes over the edge of your shoe 
there right. has to be a higher likelihood that you twist your ankle mm-hmm. or blow out your knee. You could have saved you, Zion Williams. You would Zion yeah. Williamson. You would, right. You you would really think. I mean, he's from Duke. I should say his name wrong. <laughs> but <Sorry>. what? <laughs> but why wouldn't? Tell me why you wouldn't always want your foot to stop when your shoe stops. They should be in sync to whatever degree possible. And and if you're going to try to lift weights or push something, do you want to push on it and slip? Or do you want to just push on it? So I don't think we've discovered the best uses for this yet. I mean, in, in my work boots out on the ranch, you know, you're building fence on a side hill. You're always sliding around inside your boot and it wears your feet out. So I think there's, but, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, if you're trying to run a, a 430 marathon or a 430 pace for a marathon, you know, is there too much uh, friction? I don't know yet. We're, it's just too early. But but what we're doing for insoles, in my view, needs to be rethought. I mean, we're still putting 70 cent insoles in $250 shoes. And I think that that's bat poop crazy, uh, you know. The plantar surface of your foot is where your foot and shoe interact in a performance manner. And we've got 70 cent insole, $1.20 insoles. I mean, this is like putting wood benches in a Mercedes. Most of the evidence on comfort thus far is that one of the biggest factors when it comes to shoe comfort is actually those first top couple layers of the shoe, right? It's the, the immediate contact with the plantar surface. So, And we were talking about things wearing out. Test this. Many of the insoles that are in shoes go flat between the fitting stool and the car in the parking lot. (laughs) I mean, it's 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 less than ten miles, and that that doesn't need to be the. I mean, here we are. We're making insoles out of waste foam. You know, if you can make a better insole out of waste foam, why isn't everybody making a better insole out of waste foam? Don't they have the responsibility to clean up their own trash? They've got enough of it out there that they could definitely do that for sure. So And make um, a better product. Yeah. So uh, one, of the, one of the quick things I, I had a thought on in my testing with these two is you asked, is there too much grip? And I think that, you know, at at some level, you're gonna have you're gonna have shear forces at every interaction point, and I found that when there was such a high, um, you know, connection between this and my sock, the next friction point is the shear that happens at the skin level, and so depending on the shoe and kind of how it was sitting on my foot, because the sock wasn't going anywhere, the only thing that was taking shear was the compliancy of my skin, and so that repetitive over 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 led to some hot spots. Um, and it was just in one pair of shoes that. Yeah. Uh, and, matter, and, and, and probably the sock you're wearing too. We've got, yes. a, we probably need to dial this into the right sock and, and learn, you know, one thing I know it'll rip the heck out of, it will eat, it will eat cotton socks. Yeah. Like, uh, like an old bulldog. Yeah. I mean, they won't, you know, I was wearing feature socks and they, in their own right, have a little bit of a grip component to, kind of the materials underneath we found and just or I've found at least wearing them. I know our media guy Bach thinks the same, but I do need to wrap us up. Uh, we could probably talk for another hour and it would be 
a lot of fun. Um, but again, Stuart, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on. Blue Maca is more than just insoles. Um, and Stuart, you've kind of talked about some of them before we recorded, but please go check out their website to learn more about what they're doing. And the big story there is the use of these recycled materials to create uh, higher quality products. So please go check it out. And um, we'll be putting out our entire deep review on these insoles just to give our take on them. So you'll be able to read that in time. Um, and we'll be able to talk with Stuart kind of about those as well. I feel like the sign of a good innovator is someone who wants feedback, um, good or bad. And so it's exciting to kind of work with people like that. So again, and we don't mean to discriminate against Matthew, you know, send, send us, uh, you know, come on. I mean, we need to get him involved. I don't know what he did to, to it was, get left out of the club, but to be uh, honest, it was actually, it was actually Matt's fault because we were sent information of how to order them and David and I ordered oh. them on our own and Matt didn't. So it's on Matt. Well, you know, <laughs> oh, my bad. he's, he's a PhD I candidate, they, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> not, I am still a student in a month. Hopefully I'll be a candidate. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so it was my fault. Yeah, usually I'm not paying attention. Well, let's 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 get a pair on because I I I think it's in, you know I, I really appreciate the the nod to Blue Maca making performance products out of recycled content, better and recycled, and that's that's an important thing for us. And definitely, we're doing it. We we think we make the cleanest foam on earth. Yeah. And it's a big deal. And we will, again, we're going to revisit with Stuart later this year when we do our feature on sustainability. So we're excited to have him as part of that panel when we get to that point. Um, but again, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you would like to keep up with what we're doing, you can check us out on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, Doctors of Running. Uh, and so you can see all those things, our, all, of our, all of our info, all of our stuff. It's going to be on docsofrunning.com. Again, check out the December uh, roundup. That's going to give you information on Megan's Wings and our giving initiatives. We think that that's probably one of the most important things that we can do now that, you know, through all of these avenues, we've actually started to generate income. We want to use it for good stuff. So join us in that. And again, we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everybody. 